guest in this episode, Alexis Shotwell, is a social theorist and professor of sociology and anthropology at Carleton University who has a rare gift for addressing and expressing the incredible complexity of our current system and also how to understand and accept our own embeddedness in it. Her book, Against Purity, Living Ethically in Compromised Times, published in 2016, is a text that, as she says here, came out of a time when it was becoming impossible to ignore the overlapping emergencies that we now face. Under the global capitalist regime, she says, the pernicious impacts of acceleration and extraction tend to need to be invisibilized in order for the system to keep going unopposed. But how do we explain, then, why the political reaction to these disastrous effects doesn't turn into more mass dissent and a greater sense of shared vulnerability? Shotwell says that a doctrine of purism or purity politics turns us against each other, cultivating and asserting one's own individual purity against these unsettling feelings of contamination. Whether we acknowledge it or not, the unjust system we inhabit implicates us because we are these eating, excreting bodies, to use a phrase from Against Purity. And if we aren't sure how to implicate the system effectively, it's because available practices of self-purification and detoxing only give us the comfortable feeling of being innocent ourselves. Alexis's work is radical, inventive, and maybe most of all deeply feminist in the sense that Angela Davis gives us in her recent conversation with Astra Taylor for Haymarket Books. Davis says that, quote, feminism troubles our neat analyses. It makes us deal with a messy world. It makes us recognize social realities that don't always reflect the neatness of our analytic categories and that we have to be willing to try to begin to approximate the messiness of social reality. This question of how to engage with the messiness of our situation is how we begin our conversation here. The thing about the questions I have for you is that they really come out of your willingness to dwell with the messiness of these problems, you know? Uh, so the questions themselves, I apologize if they are kind of a little bit scrambled at times, but I've tried to refine them down a little bit and make them come out of, as I say, uh, an engagement with what you've written. Um, yeah, but that, yeah, that sounds, for it sounds perfect. Yeah. Uh, cool. because I also haven't prepared anything in particular. And so, <laughs> um, we can, we can dwell with the messiness together. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So to me, like the interesting thing with the, the sort of messiness of, uh, I, I wouldn't even say that the text itself is, is messy, right? It's more like, the again the kind of willingness to be open to the messiness of these problems rather than providing a very prescriptive answer you know it makes me wonder why the book has had uh, the sort of impact that it has mm -hmm. in, a, in a sense like you've noted on the uh, podcast this is not a pipe uh, that it has had in fact a kind of broad public appeal which is just interesting in terms of its deeply theoretical you know qualities why do you think it's resonated so much yeah i mean I still feel, I guess sometimes I have not regret that it's been taken up by people that I never would have imagined would have opened it. Um, I never have regret about that, but I do have regret that when I wrote it, I didn't imagine that because I think of it as a book that's participating in a particular kind of side of the room conversation inside academia. and. So I guess what I would say is um, I think the book came out at this particular moment where everyone was really thinking through um, some of the beginnings of what now is becoming really um, just impossible to not think about, right? So the book came out um, at the end of 2016, so in the U.S., there were all these people reckoning with what it meant to have uh, Trump coming into office. Um, there were sort of suddenly an increasing conversation about the fact of climate change and um, beginning to be, you know, they're just not, not beginning, right? All of these conversations have been happening, but more and more people were sort of 
caring really deeply about things like climate change or recycling or water or um, just and re realizing that there wasn't a way that they individually or personally could fix these enormous problems. Um, so I think something just happened around that moment um, where it was, um, I mean, certainly that's why I wrote the book and I, and I wrote it way faster than I've written other things. So it felt like urgent or these things were available to me. And it was really lovely to see that the questions feel urgent and available to people. Um, and I think I would say that the thing that people ask me most often, like all of the non-academics who read the book, the first thing they say is, have you considered writing a version of this book, but not an academic one? <laughs> you know, like, um, and mm -hmm. yeah, and I, I often wish that that's where I'd started, you know, like that's a, a limitation of being situated so much in the conversations inside the academy. Mm -hmm. Well, but in a way, I think, um, at least what I've found is that this medium of being able to kind of just, you know, talk about these claims rather than, you know, labor over the exact wording that we want, mm -hmm. you know, in, in a book, it allows you to kind of open up the conversation to a certain extent. Um, you know, I can't really, you mentioned that um, you, you, you regret sort of not imagining the audience to some extent, or at least that it would have this broad public audience. That is you know, to be honest, the struggle, I think, in this medium as well. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, th this is really the next question I wanted to ask you was like, you know, and you've kind of answered it, really, who the imagined audience of Against Purity was. Um, but the kind of follow up to that for me is this question of which audience you think needs the book the most, mm -hmm. like, who stands the most to gain from integrating its insights around, um, you know, purity moves, as you call them, or the, you know, politics mm -hmm. of purity into their own practices. Yeah, so I still care about academics. I think academics are people, real people who have real politics and can do things. And, and of course, I feel like the people that can actually change things in the world are uh, ordinary people. And so that means um, people who are don't see themselves as engaging in a simply intellectual project, but people who are engaging in an intellectual project out of their care for the world. So I think certainly I'm always really interested in um, people who don't think of themselves as philosophers, but who are doing philosophy, um, people who don't think of themselves as scholars, but they're doing rich scholarly work. Um, and so part of the people that I have encountered now who are reading the book um, and who I really love being in conversation with are all of the people who are not, uh, they're not trying to be in a particular narrow conversation. They're trying to be in a big conversation about things that matter to them. Um, and so I think that one of the things that I, like about the book is a lot of what I what I was doing in it was really thinking with people who are um, not and it so I I don't want to be disparaging academia right like I feel like there's something that's really wonderful that happens in academia it's the reason I still devote so much of uh, you know Mary Oliver has that poem where she ends it by saying what are you going to do with your one wild and precious human life. And, and I'm like giving a lot of my one wild and precious human life to being part of a university community. And I don't think that's nothing, right? Like I would never um, disparage it actually. And I, I find so much inspiration in all of the people in this world who are asking questions that are not delimited by disciplinary boundaries or by the specific um, imperatives of the neoliberal academy as it's currently constituted. So those are people like my friend Jim, who I write about and, and had a conversation with that's really um, trying to show how just like walking and talking with Jim is really the basis of what I think about as cultivating an ethical 
noticing practice of being in the world. And Jim is like, a, um, he's a brilliant poet. He is a teacher of writing at the college level in California. Um, he's someone who has just made of himself a person that can uh, be called on to do assessments on how many of you know this particular frog live in this area, what kind of development can happen here. So he's an example for me, but there's a million examples of people like that who are incredibly rich thinkers and complicated and interesting and curious and caring. Um, so that's always who I think of when I'm thinking and writing and that, and that's the kind of conversation that I'm always so interested to have. I think we all are right. I mean, when it comes mm -hmm. down to it, that's the kind of conversation we want to have. Yeah. Um, Sheena Wilson in her podcast for just powers talks about wanting to have like new love affairs and that scene that you describe of walking with Jim, the figure of Jim really reminded me of, um, Susan Orlean's book, the orchid thief and walking with this orchid thief and sort of seeing the world through his eyes. Um, and, and the, the kind of the main thrust of that book is this, um, desire that she has to occupy that position of, you know, being passionate, deeply passionate about, um, something, right. Yeah. Um, and being open to the, the intensification of like the impossibility of persistence for, for all of us, like, you know, being, being up to that kind of challenge, um, in some vital way, I think. Um, but you know, that's a really complex thing for people. And I have a lot of questions about, um, communication strategies basically, and how you, you know, move people to a place where they can, you know, uh, dwell with the complexity of the current moment and the ways in which they are implicated in relations of suffering. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think, uh, you're trying you, persistently throughout the book, you're trying to resist what, uh, Julie Guffman calls problem closure yeah. and these closure narratives. Um, you know, it, I wonder, you know, to what extent you think these closure narratives are maybe peculiar to capitalism? Mm -hmm. um, you know, how do you see the end of history argument, for example, uh, of, you know, Francis Fukuyama mm -hmm. playing out in relationship to this intensified sense that, you know, the future is not stable, that, you know, yeah. capitalist states are kind of being brought to their knees by this pandemic and in the future, certainly the effects of climate change and beyond that in the present, when you look to California and mm -hmm. Oregon. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so that that idea that Julie Guthman has of problem closure, I continue to feel is just so um, brilliant, and I want more people to have it in their theoretical toolbox or their toolbox for understanding the world. So maybe I'll take just one second to say what I think is so cool about it. Um, so because it hooks in to um, really like interesting whole set of questions about how the tools we have to measure or perceive the world shape the kind of perception or measurement we make. Um, so problem closure is both what you're talking about in that sense of if we have this narrative of history and this way of understanding how the world is developing, we can close off the possibility of unexpected solutions. Um, and it's also this sense that if you're, I mean, you know, if you're a hammer, everything you look it looks like a nail, um, but it's that if you're measuring, um, if you're measuring temperature and the temperature, you know, measurement tool you have is what you have, you're not measuring light, right? So there's these uh, ways that the tools we have to understand the world shape the kind of understanding we have, um, and that can uh, delimit or constrict the the possible space of how we think about what should happen. Um, so all sorts of binary thinking turns out to be a form of problem closure. Um, and I think I was, um, you know, reading a friend's social media world and they were quoting someone who was saying, look out for the moments where people ask you to choose whether you would um, go back in time and kill uh, baby Hitler uh, because what that's actually asking is, will you go back and kill a baby? Um, pick something that's not baby killing. 
Um, <laughs> and, and as soon as I read it, I was like, yeah, that's so interesting. Like we're offered really bad choices that mm-hmm. also end up um, doing exactly this thing that I'm very worried about in the book and in my life, which is also assuming that if you kill Hitler, Nazism doesn't happen, right? So as soon as you have a simple narrative that's like these great or evil men do things, um, you shut down also the possibility for asking, how could we have a different world, right? Um, So how could we have an open future? Um, So having a sense of the problems that we're facing as complicated, interconnected, um, and open means that we can begin to also loosen our sense that we personally have to be perfect, that we individually have to solve everything, um, and that if we personally mess up, we can never be helpful again. Hmm. So there's all these layers of there's all these layers of problem closure. I mean, can I jump just really quickly to, um, I've been thinking a lot about uh, Jessica Krug, the white woman who just um, was outed as faking for years being black. Have you heard about her mm, case? Yeah. yeah. In all of these ways, there's these, um, it's another form of problem closure to say, the only people who can do good, meaningful work fighting racism are people who are racialized, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Thinking about all of the cases where people are taking up um, identifications and subjectivities that are not collectively held, acknowledged to be theirs, we can see this happening, right? So um, Andrea Smith, you know, didn't have to claim Cherokee identity in order to do really beautiful, important work for and with indigenous women and for and with indigenous feminism. Um, So there's this quality of how do we access forms of subjectivity and forms of practice, political practice, that bend our world toward collective flourishing without pretending that we don't inherit and carry the actual histories and complicities that we do. So it's, you know, we can really shift that and we can say we don't have to lie about who we are in order to say, I want to fight. I want to fight who I am, actually. Uh, I, we don't have to lie about being implicated in climate change in order to say, I want to fight climate change. We don't have to be innocent. I mean, there's some other things I could say about trauma and, but I'm taking us in very, but you read the book, so you know that this is actually just a thing that I do. Take us in weird <laughs> little directions. But, you know, um, and I'm thinking about, you know, the section of the book on forgetting um, and how you, you say in that section that in context, or I'm quoting you, in context organized by a socially sanctioned forgetting, all of us will have to acquire memories of events and relations that we did not ourselves experience, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not necessary to present oneself to occupy the place of, um, you know, uh, the descendants of that trauma, right? In order to engage with it, right? Like we, as you say, we we will all have to acquire memories of events that we are not, we don't have direct access to. And so it, it, this is where, you know, the point from which you can kind of articulate this more complex politics of responsibility that says, it's a labor, like it's a continuous kind of um, labor. And I think what you're seeing, and I think this is why you're, you know, maybe less inclined to disparage academia in this moment, you can see within academia, a desire to decolonize the mind, right, to decolonize the curriculum, starting to flourish, Um, you know, the, the recognition of what you term memory oppression, and its contemporary effects, like there, I, I think this is why you've kind of taken us in that direction. But um, I guess I, you know, I'm, I am still curious to think a little bit more about um, your methodology, I guess, to some extent. Like, I know that you moved from a philosophy department, 
and I guess disciplinary background into sociology, having by your own admission never taken a sociology class. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm in a similar position where I teach communications, having never taken, really a... taken a communication class. Yeah. I just happen to have an English degree, and, and that's what you do with an English degree. Um, so, but it seems to me that if you're if you're a theorist of one particular thing, it is this, um, you know, this theory of complexity, right? And and of trying to scale our tools, our theoretical tools, up to the level of complexity that we face in the Anthropocene, mm-hmm. um, the predicament we're in. And and so to me, it's this useful antidote. Like it's a it's a kind of almost a diatribe against. Um, things like TED Talks or mm-hmm. what Imre Zeman calls techno-utopianism, seeking just like a magic fix for decarbonizing the atmosphere um, using technology. And and to me, this, you know, this is really what I'm after in this podcast in general. Like mm-hmm. if there's a, a unifying theme, it's the idea that, you know, complex ideas dwelling with structural problems and doing so in a way that isn't just, you know, behind various levels of arcane academic analysis, but actually, and, and I would never put your book in that category by any means, to me, that has a certain kind of transformational power. And the Im- impact your book has made is is a testament to that, um, you know. And so basically what I'm saying, and I guess this is less of a question, is that I feel like you've hit on a way of articulating the need to imagine ways of um, you know, uh, seeing capitalist power relations, right? And you're also talking about tactics right you say you hope for something more like a plan than just a elegant way of phrasing it um and to me that is potentially um liberatory and i guess to get to a question um why do you why do you think politically it's so productive to pursue what you call non-innocent responsibility right Mm -hmm. this kind of impure responsibility and do you give any credence to the idea um that making people confront suffering primarily inspires dread or fear. And so as a tactic of communication might backfire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've thought about this a lot. And um, well, my first book was a book about uh, the the importance of knowledge that you have that isn't in words. So non-propositional knowledge. And it was really directed at philosophers. Like it was a, it was an argument in the discipline, the part of philosophy called epistemology, which is the study of knowledge and how we know that we know something and who can be a good knower. And in that book, I have a chapter about um, whiteness and shame. Um, and try to delineate between white guilt and white shame um, and say that white guilt is not useful, and but that white shame is useful. Um, and there's a really interesting uh, artist, Adrian Piper, artist and philosopher. She's a Kant scholar uh, and a conceptual artist. Um, and she came to NASCAD um, and did some, I think she was an artist in residence for some time. And she would do uh, things like teaching white people to dance um, and, and letting them feel how awkward that felt. Um, so anyway, I spent a lot of time thinking about whiteness and shame. And after Against Purity came out, I started coming back to it. Um, because I think that one of the feelings that we have when we recognize that we're involved, that we're complicit, and that things are too complicated for us to be innocent, one of the feelings that we can have is shame. And and that feeling is a horrible feeling to have. It's a reason that people turn away from um, turn away from doing the work um, and turn toward um, lies, you know, lies of being innocent and not implicated. So um, I pretty much never think that it's useful for us to on purpose try to make people feel bad. Um, I pretty much think that mostly people feel how hard things are. And a lot of the time people feel how, um, how brutal the world is. And um, just are really white people, mostly who I'm thinking about. I think we white people are really committed to pretending that we don't know how uh, horrible things are and how deeply implicated we are in the horror. So 
I've never, I've never found it to work to, um, to say to any white person, a friend, a student, a stranger, my family, like, let me tell you all the things, right? Um, but I have felt that it works to allow, like, to feel with people, to allow people to feel that um, that bad feeling, that feeling of being implicated in something that we abjure, you know, that we detest, that we don't want. We don't want, we don't want a world where people are poisoned by um, the, you know, by the things that are made, making our phone. Like we don't want people burning alive in factories because the doors were closed and locked so that they wouldn't go take a smoke break. Like we don't, we don't want prisoners drowning because the, the storm, the hurricane came and no one let them out of their cell. Like no one actually psychopaths or um, however we're going to non stigmatizingly say people who are like very far gone into inability to be in the world. You know, there are some horrible people, right? Who want 4chan, 4chan trolls, sure. <laughs> yeah. death yeah. and destruction. But yeah. most ordinary people, when they see these things and they feel like I can't do anything about that, the feeling they're feeling is, I wish I could do something about that. And if they, if they could, they would. So, yeah. so that tuning in to like, let's look together at how this is awful. Um, and let's start there. Routinely feels doable to me and and better. <laughs> um, and then it's like you start, you know, you start there and then other things happen and things are surprising. Um, so, so I feel like it's never easy to feel how hard everything is, um, but it's always better. <laughs> Um, it's always better than the alternative because people aren't, you know, we're not stupid. We don't not know things. It's just, we often don't know how to do anything to help. Yeah. And you, you put it beautifully in the book when you say we don't just have a knowledge problem, right? And, and you kind of gesture to it when you said it's more about an unwillingness, right? We have, as you say, a habit of being problem. Um, and, and elaborate by saying like the problem of whiteness is a problem of what we expect. Um, it, this, this constant externalizing of where, you know, uh, threats to the good life emerge from, you know, we're seeing this in a variety of different ways right now. And I think in particular, you can see the, the breaking down of that particular edifice, right. Of white exceptionalism around the the wildfires or the climate fires. I mean, you know, when you write, we are still implicated by contamination in relatively pure areas like Nova Scotia. Um, I started thinking about how, you know, these the traces of these wildfires are visible in Quebec. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you have the permeation of these imaginary and political boundaries by, you know, um, the visible death of the landscape breaking through borders. Um, So, you know, I... I guess the the question for me is is so if we are at a, this moment where um, there's you know p- pretty general disgust at the level of dismissiveness with with which Trump treats the reality that these are climate fires, mm-hmm. um, how do we you know co-constitute the kind of politics uh, that are going to move us past you know more you know purely gestural individual uh, forms of basically like virtue signaling. Mm-hmm. Um, And I asked that question about virtue signaling because I think there is this kind of, you know, stigma placed, especially on people uh, on the left, that they are supposedly just sanctimonious and Mm -hmm. invested in, you know, the beauty of the environment in some kind of superficial way. Um, Do you think this is an indirect celebration of a certain kind of social capital that comes from having like a no fucks given persona? Mm -hmm. Like is it risky in today's atmosphere to lean into the language of feeling or do you kind of dive right in? Mm. I mean, I need to think about that more. I, you know, one thing that I think I want to say about that quality of feeling how even when we're quite far away from something or we feel that we're far away from something, we can begin to say, Oh, I'm connected to that. 
Mm-hmm. I, um, the, the book that I'm working on right now is called Claiming Bad Kin, and it's about um, how white people can claim um, our own uh, position in relation to histories of racism and colonialism um, and how white people right now benefit from white supremacism and colonialism. So, um, so I've been thinking a lot about what it means to sort of act from that quality of not just, um, not just like making a list of all the ways we're terrible and, um, right. Because I think the, the bad thing about, I actually don't have a problem with people being correct, including politically. I don't have a problem with people being virtuous and signaling that they're virtuous. Um, but the whole reason to be correct or to signal virtue is to, um, be, be a good friend and a good comrade and a good person. Um, like I, I, I think a lot about the ways that Aristotle thought we get, we need to have friends and what our friends can do for us is become our best versions of ourselves. And the way that they do that is by being the best version of themselves, uh, by modeling that and by um, calling us in when we are not living up to what we could be. And he very, you know, beautifully and compellingly thought about the ways that being the best version of myself is going to be different than you being the best version of yourself, right? So we have different skills and different things that we love and places that we're situated. Um, so there's a way that if we start looking at when people say, well, I, I care about this or I don't think that's okay, if we start thinking of that as not a criticism of us, you know, but instead an invitation to, to virtue in Aristotle's sense, an invitation to excellence, um, then we can say, I too, like, I want to be excellent and I want to be excellent to other people. I want us to be excellent to each other. Um, and, and actually the, the thing that feels productive about this whole way of claiming, right? So I think of that as being part of claiming our kin, right? Claiming, claiming relationships with people. Like I want my friends, if I mess up, I want them to say, Alexis, I don't, I don't think you're manifesting the best version of yourself, right? Or so, no, I think you said a racist thing. Like I feel like that when someone tells us that it should be an occasion for gratitude, like, especially if it's like, a person of color giving us the time to be like, you said a racist thing on Facebook, right? If we can, we can cultivate this space of being like, thank you so much for telling me because obviously I want to be the best version of myself and that's not it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, for us here on the East coast and just feeling, um, I mean, I'm in Ottawa, but we can say like, these climate fires are burning in BC and they're burning with Trudeau in office, putting in place, you know, massive buyouts for the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And we can say another way for me to claim my place is to be on the side of indigenous land defenders. Like in every conversation, in every place where we're raising money, we can say, I'm, I'm on the side of Wet'suwet'en peoples, right? And in Nova Scotia, we can say, I'm on the side of the land defenders who don't want that river to be turned into a salt flood, you know? <laughs> like, those are all things that actually, as soon as we start doing them, they're an antidote to shame. They're a, they're a medicine. They're a way for us to find a different person to be in a different world to be that person in and a way out of you know the kind of fraught pursuit of self-righteousness right like this is a Mm -hmm. distinction you make uh between righteous which is not a you know a bad goal and self-righteous which is this self-seeking thing i mean um you you know you gesture to um the indigenous resistance against extractivism i mean you know the one of the things you talk about in against purity is is a unique form of indigenous sovereignty that, you know, as a, as a form of sovereignty is not really the way that we conventionally understand like European notions of sovereignty, right? Which is all about protectionism and 
filtering out impurities and borders, you know, um, you're talking about a form of sovereignty that's about uh, framing responsibility far more broadly, right? In an interconnected way. Whereas like under neoliberalism, you know, the logic of responsibility, it's, it's virtually always framed in terms of ownership, yeah. um, which extends to into the ways that like governments partition and classify sections of resource management, you know, try, rather than trying to take the problem uh, more holistically, I guess. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, to, to my mind, like this, this kind of tension between righteous and self-righteous um, you know, I think a lot because I teach communications and media studies more particularly about the kinds of messages we, we receive and, and like what register they're trying to communicate to us mm-hmm. on. And and the uh, the documentary I've been talking a lot about in my classes is uh, Michael Moore and Jeff Gibbs, Planet mm-hmm. of Humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wondered, like, have you seen this documentary? I haven't seen it, no. Um, you're not missing much. But, okay. <laughs> you know, the, the thing about this documentary is in a, I mean, it would be interesting to do a, a reading of it using your text because it is a film that really um, attacks, but also somehow markets in purism. Huh. So it's it's attacking a certain purism around renewable energy that uh-huh. says it's just a utopian solution. Uh, but then it's also, um, you know, advocating being somehow like outside of capitalism itself. Like Miller uh-huh. says, he's not part of the system. Uh-huh. Um, and then, you know, maybe I think most... Uh, uh, offensively, it's bluntly say, saying that overpopulation is the problem, uh-huh. right? And that really, in some sense, certain people are the problem, right? Yeah. A rapidly developing uh, world. And so, like, to me, this this made me immediately think of the section of your book where you're talking about how um, how less suffering is a moving target, yeah. and that often raises more questions than it answers. Like, the, the question is never asked, like, less suffering for whom? Whose suffering, who suffering are we trying to mitigate? And how is suffering um, measured? I think, like, how do we understand, um, you know, the the kind of hegemonic forms of suffering almost? Like, whose suffering is considered to be legitimate? Um, and how, you know, environmental racism and the kind of invisibilizing of these industrial effects and even how we get energy um, is sort of like masked, basically, from the public's uh, view. Like, how do we break through those kinds of... Um, you know, uh, walls and start to define suffering differently. Yeah. I mean, and so much of that comes down to the question of whose side we're on and the, Mm -hmm. the question of how much of the world is on the side of, I mean, the military and enormous corporations, right? Mm -hmm. So, so when we start looking at the purity arguments and, um, we start looking at the purity arguments, the eugenicist purity arguments, and the rise of eco-fascism, um, one of the things that we see immediately is that no one is actually really um, thinking about what it would look like to hold the military accountable for their impact on the world, their environmental impact on the world, um, their uh their production of suffering impact on the world, right? Like there's these really practical, um, direct things. And, and these things don't get talked about in, it's a question of scale, partially because they're too big and too enmeshed and, um, and also too, um, bureaucratic, I want to say. So like when I lived in Sudbury, Ontario, which is a, a city that's built around a nickel mine, there would really routinely be um, like, there would be a a sulfuric acid spill from the mine and a klaxon would go off and you would need to be inside during that time. And since I've moved away from Sudbury, I sometimes have this, like, it's not like an echo of that. It's a, a memory that I have not heard that klaxon, right? Mm. So it's that where I am in the capital of what's currently Canada, that sound is far away from me. I don't hear it. Uh, So that's a conspiracy (laughs) um, to make everyone who lives in Ottawa feel like there isn't 
um, acid being spilled into the air that would burn your lungs if you breathed it. Um, it like that's something that that means that the best intentioned people can not know the things that are securing our um, our ease and our clean streets. So how to get that into view, right? It's like, it has to be, it has to be really um, particular and granular. So it's like every time the Ontario environmental fines that would have gone into place on the company Valet, formerly Inco, the company would apply for a, um, an extension you know, they would be like, well, it's been really complicated to get these safety standards in place. We just need a little bit more time. And every time they would get another six months, um, right? Like they should have been mm-hmm. paying fees and getting punished for the destruction they were um, wreaking on the land there. And they would just, a form would get filled out and they, you know, so these things are happening all over all the time. And, um, and so the kinds of, places that we can find a connection to it, right? Like the the kinds of places we can get a grip on all of that is both at this enormous scale, right? It's to be like, okay, yes, there are microplastics in the, there are microplastics everywhere in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And let's look at commercial fishing line, um, right? Like, so let's, let's not just look at the things that the yoga pants that individual people are wearing. Let's also look at the production of um, fish harvesting. Let's also look at the production of, so let's look at capitalism basically, right? Yeah. Let's say what happens if we change how we're understanding scale. Um, and and so I some of that I think comes down to the question you're asking around how do we decide who whose suffering counts and where is it? Uh, but a lot of it also comes down to stopping s- stopping being willing to sacrifice things, lives, ecosystems for money. Um, like we, we actually need to have this refusal of scarcity as the basis for our life, right? Like um, there has to be this, there has to be a turn toward having this recognition of the actually like incredible abundance of our world and the incredible maldistribution of that abundance. Um, And then we can start having a conversation about whether there's too many people, right? But we can't actually have that conversation under these conditions. Like it's, it's not a, it's not a conversation. It's a it's a polemic that just lines up. And anytime a polemic lines up really, really well with a um, a set of politics, we should check that. You know, we should wonder about it. That's also part of being uh, refusing purity. Actually, is um, being willing to ask about even things that we feel really sure about. You know, like, well, is that the case? You know, what happens if it's not? Yeah, absolutely. Like being, um, you know, willing to dig a little bit, uh, a little bit deeper, be self-reflexive about, as you put it, the things that we expect, these habit of being problems, like the ability to, you know, uh, live without limits, it seems to me like that's one of the basic things we assume is that we can live without awareness of the limits, Mm -hmm. or the need to think about, you know, where commodities come from. Uh, You know, the two things I definitely want to make time to talk to you about are, um, you know, your recent writing on the uh, COVID-19 pandemic and how it has, you know, generated a mass awareness of these kinds of, of limits, right? Mm-hmm. The extent to which we can instrumentalize nature. Um, but I also want to talk about uh, the ways in which uh, Against Purity thinks about eating in mm-hmm. particular um, and the kind of messiness of, of eating, um, you know, th- so I don't know where to begin. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know which one to do first. Uh, maybe eating, right? Okay, yeah, let's um, start with eating. You know, the tomato example really blew me away. Like the way that you talk about eating a tomato, eating a tomato is either, you know, something that 
is this like totally reified thing that's abstracted from a supply chain or something that actually causes us to visualize the entirety of that supply chain in mm-hmm. all of its messiness. Um, eating is such an exemplary case of purity politics. And that chapter was especially sharp, I think, in, in its critique of purism. Mm-hmm. Why do you think food is such a trap? Mm-hmm. Is it about the pleasure and the experience socially and personally that it produces? And why can't we reckon with you know, the reality of how complex the food system is, like how quickly, you know, I think too about how quickly we um, all succumb to the utopian rhetoric around the impossible burger and like beyond mm-hmm. meat as this like technological solution to eating practices without actually, you know, dwelling with how we have a habit of being problem as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think food, food's just so intimate, right? It's mm-hmm. we, we take it into ourselves. It becomes us. It's also so complicated because it's, um, I mean, it's it's everything, right? There's a certain way that we can just, we can get everything just by looking at our, our dinner plate. Um, and in COVID times, you know, this is heightened. So we, I mean, every everyone I know is, is or um, once they think about it for a minute, they are uh, thinking about, what it means to have people who are picking the harvest right now um, expected to work when they're um, sick, what it means to have them not be able to have dignified lives at all, but especially dignified lives for being isolated in in order to uh, keep other people well. So the, the sort of general thing that is happening under capitalism in general it's really heightened right now where people are like, I just want a little bit of pleasure. And then, you know, people who normally would like bring their tiffin or their Tupperware with them to the restaurant to take home the leftovers are suddenly like, I guess I'm getting takeout and I'm eating it in a, you know, styrofoam case that will literally last until the ends of the earth. You know, like it's, Mm. um, so there's just like, I think COVID is heightening a lot of people's feeling of like, I just can't handle thinking about that. I just want to eat uh, food, you know, and yeah, skip the dishes. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm just going to, ah, Uber Eats is bad. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. So it's so like, is everything bad? Just tell me one thing I can do. That's a, it, like it. Yeah. And then also food is, is the place where we have the feeling of family and the feeling of comfort. It's the place where for a lot of us, we have, legacies of shame and feeling like we're disgusting if we eat things or if we don't eat things. So I also feel like eating is such a good place for us to start with um, reconstituting our relationship with the world that supports and sustains us so that every place where we feel that, any feeling actually, right? Like any uh, tugs of disgust or desire or love or care or guilt, that all of those we can take as points of attachment. And as soon as we have a point of attachment, we have a point of relationship. And as soon as we're in relationship, we can try to practice relationships of responsibility. And as soon as we're practicing relationships of responsibility, we're liberated from perfection because we're always going to make mistakes but making mistakes is not the end it's just the beginning um so my my favorite person right now that still i mean i i write about her in the book is lisa heldke who the way she talks about this is she says when we're eating we have we're not eating things we're eating relationships and that allows us to say I want to be in different relationships. Um, And that allows us to start changing them. Um, But it's always going to be in the actual world that we actually live in. So we can't suddenly change them and become breatharians, right? Like we're, we're just always going to be in the middle. So I think, you know, that chapter has that vibe because I eat vegan, which is a completely ridiculous thing to do, right? Like it's, it's impossible. It's an impossible thing to do. And I eat vegan because I took a Buddhist vow to try to be of benefit and not hurt 
beings. And so it's like every time I check the ingredients on something, it's not because I'm like liberated from circuits of death. It's a reminder to ask myself what relations I'm in and what I can do from where I am. And I think you don't have to have taken Buddhist vows or eat vegan to start just asking that, you know, and, and then again, like not lying, you know, uh, just being honest. This is what I'm eating right now. Um, that's, you know, that's what's happening. Yeah. I think, you know, this is what your book makes room for is, is a kind of step-by-step change that recognizes it recognizes that you know not everyone has sort of um, you know mastered the ability to navigate the food environment, and so we have to kind of avow our own complicity, our own entanglement, in order to meet each other on common grounds. Basically, like that's the only way uh, to generate what you call it, like not you know one better future, but you know uh, uh, an iteration, many many futures, right? That hopefully will be progressively better. Um, for these love affairs that Sheena Wilson talks about mm-hmm. with non-human animal life, for example, um, you know, and and that maybe is where we can uh, um, take it, take the conversation now to some extent. Like the the presence of zoonotic viruses is now this unignorable thing, right? Mm-hmm. The WHO published a document describing what they called Disease X, which really, in many ways, was a, a prophetic document that you know saw the coronavirus coming, but governments just really didn't heed the warning because it was still so abstract. Mm -hmm. But as soon as, um, you know, a virus emerges, that's, of course, this moment where we have to actually start to, um, you know, dwell with the reality of what you call Mm interabsorption, even across these species lines. Um, And so it, it really breaches the what you call possessive or defensive individualism until it reaches the kind of zenith of that mm-hmm. kind of possessive individualism in the in the form of these populist leaders, but there was this this resistance to the the porousness of borders. I think even as the coronavirus was making borders sort of irrelevant, mm-hmm. I have some questions about the way that you write about mm-hmm. uh, the pandemic in your upping the anti article. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you write about how quote contemporary containment strategies threaten to leave in place militarized policing structures. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, you know, that line kind of chilled me to the bone because this is something I've been thinking about and, you know, it's kind of open-ended. And what I wondered is, are you talking, you know, mainly about contact tracing and like ramping up of surveillance or are you, it seems like you're talking about something more at the level of our very like being, our Mm -hmm. ontologies and normalized ways of being social. Um, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, I think this is partially because I have spent so much of my academic life doing an oral history project about the history of AIDS activism in the Canadian context. And so when I came into thinking about COVID, I was very, very primed to be thinking about it in relation to previous um, government responses to um, viruses. And and so also very, um, I've always been very interested in the ways that we as societies try to make responses to viruses when we don't know what they are actually, um, which is most of the time. Like we don't, and coronavirus, this COVID-19 is a good example of uh, a virus where what it is, like its being, has changed in our understanding many times, right? So in, in ways that are also um, directly involved in some of the really tragic things. So um, so at the beginning, when it was thought this is really about a surface transmission um, and there was worry about people hoarding masks, um, the messaging was very much like, no one needs to wear a mask. You're actually being very selfish if you wear a mask. And that meant that it was really hard when it became clear, like, oh, no, we haven't related to the aerosolized nature of this virus well enough. It's very new. We don't know, right? Like, um, So that's shifted, but it's been um, so distributed, right? So how, how people now can feel um, that uh, it's, um, you know, a plot <laughs> to make them wear a mask is just it's one of these things where I don't actually feel I a little bit don't even feel 
sort of mad at them. You know, I feel just incredibly sad that they should, they should be able to rely on, they should be able to rely on public health people. Um, and, uh, and they should have the background to be able to understand the ways that things change. Now, then I'm like, well, I understand why people don't rely on public health people, partially because I've studied the history of AIDS in this country and, you know, BC passed a motion, like they passed legislation to quarantine people who were HIV positive or suspected of being HIV positive on former leper colonies. There was a legislative motion in Nova Scotia that almost went through to quarantine people who were HIV positive or suspected of being HIV positive following the BC model on George's Island. Hmm. So, you know, there's like lots of reasons to be suspicious of the ways that uh, states and um, state formations move slowly and uh, bend toward repression um, and and tend to target people who are uh, least resourced and um, given like standing in any given uh, given world. So thinking about how the logic or the language around COVID-19 um, manifested in the early days, especially, was very much around closing borders um, keeping the boundaries safe, keeping things out. And there were certain good health things that happened as a result of that, right? So like if you play the game pandemic, getting the, there's a card that you can get where they shut down commercial air travel and it buys you a little time in the game, right? We played that much earlier than anyone who's ever played the game pandemic would have expected. Um, but what we didn't do then was right away begin thinking about the ways that in order to have a world where people can flourish, we have to have connection and we have to prioritize what kind of connection we actually want to have. So right now in Ontario, you're not feeling this so much in, um, in Nova Scotia and in the Maritimes, but in Ontario, people have made this decision that we're going to open bars and we're going to have people sitting down in restaurants and gatherings are going to happen. Um, and it means that kids are not going to be able to go to school. And that means that these rippling concentric circles of, um, of real pain are going to increase. Mm -hmm. So it all comes down to when, when we think that we have this kind of individualist protectionism, like when we think that's going to work and when we realize it doesn't work um, and what we can do as a world, as a society to build a different plan, um, you know, and that means giving up, like it means giving up the profit motive in some real way, right? Like it, we just, we need to like invest in public infrastructure we need people to have enough food and good water and have safe places to live. Like those things need to be not organized around dyadic monogamous household structures that stabilize the tax base of the country. Like we need a big revolution <laughs> in order to keep everyone alive long enough for us to figure out how to live. Mm -hmm. At the local and the global level, I mean, Mike Davis has talked about how if we actually had, um, you know, a, a, a system of medical innovation that wasn't driven by profit, we'd likely have a universal vac vaccine and these kinds of like seemingly unimaginable solutions. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and what I love about the article that you wrote for uh, Upping the Anti is that it doesn't, it doesn't just rest on, um, you know, as it were, you know, I think appropriate tactics of, of alarming people, right? It doesn't just stay there. In the end, what you're arguing is that the virus, again, I'm quoting you, invites us to form practices for taking care that allow more of us to live. And you say straight up, we should emerge from isolation with more demands for collective care. Um, th this is what I think is so valuable. And, and the way in which I think 
your your writing on AIDS clearly kind of informed your thinking um, about COVID. It's like there's something incredibly mobilizing about speaking that language of care in relationship yeah. to this virus. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, Scott, I feel like we are, right? Everyone I know, like everyone I know is actually like, I had not understood how important it was that we have a whole society that thinks yeah. that it's good to take care of kids. And now I do, right? And and I, like, I feel that more people have actually given half a thought both to people in long-term care, people who are elders, people who are workers in long-term care facilities, people who are early childhood workers. I feel like more people now think about what it means that, you know, like more people now think about people who are working in grocery stores. So I do think that, and I think that people overwhelmingly, I, I just have seen this happen so often and I find it so moving um, that people, when they think about whether they're going to catch COVID, when they were like, I don't, oh, the masks aren't effective for me protecting myself. So I don't need to wear a mask, right? That happened a lot. But as soon as you said to people, you're not protecting yourself, you're protecting everyone around you. I would over and over again, see people be like, oh, well then obviously I'll wear a mask, right? If it's for someone else, I'll do that. Like I don't, so that's lovely. And that's, that's part of the other piece that's really come out as people, especially in the U.S., have started to, out of necessity, because the government is not taking care of them, they are taking care of each other. So just, you know, I, I have friends who are science fiction nerds, as I am, and we were sitting around having a distanced conversation, and uh, one of them said, you know, I've read so many dystopias. In all of them, what happens is the government cracks down and is repressive. Um, it's just really surprising to be in a dystopia where the government's just like, well, I guess you're going to die. <laughs> I'm not going to do anything about it. Right. And, uh, you know, so that's what's happening, especially in the U.S. And and then ordinary people are helping each other. Mm -hmm. And it's sad and beautiful. Yeah, we're seeing, um, you know, you're right. It's it's sad and beautiful. We're seeing the kind of underside of that, as it were, the kind of dark, uh, kind of I don't know, manifestation of that with the reported rise of like militias governing checkpoints in the in the scorched areas of Oregon. I mean, like there are ways in which it can manifest really bleakly um, in the decline of the neoliberal state, the kind of you know obvious inability of the neoliberal state to actually meet the moment. Um, but then, you know, more inspiring, more inspiring, we're seeing people band together and form um, forms of solidarity that didn't even seem possible before yeah. now. Yeah. Um, so I think and this is, you know, what is so instructive about the uh, legacy of AIDS activism and the reason why you really stress that, um, you know, it, it was social movements that actually changed the narrative. Right. Mm -hmm. It's, it, you know, it, in the aftermath of this pandemic, there will be, I think, a desire to just erase it from our memory, mm -hmm. the way that the 1918 so-called Spanish flu was sort of erased as soon mm -hmm. as it was uh, overcome, as it were. Um, but we, I feel like we can't allow that forgetting to take place. There'll be a, a, a true kind of like violence to um, uh, any sort of attempt to re-narrate it in the way that the Trump administration, for example, is trying to re-narrate it. Um, you'll, you'll necessarily have to have some kind of I think what you term political activist ethnography um, to actually, I think, document um, the the victories over apathy. Yeah, so for sure. I mean, and my comrade Gary Kinsman has that beautiful phrase, the social organization of forgetting. And it's it's right away we can start thinking like, who do we want to remember, right? And especially, I think, coming out of doing all that work on HIV and AIDS, it's like, there are so many people who did not need to die in the last six months. They didn't, their deaths, they didn't need to happen. And we've lost beautiful people. So, so how can we actually like hold that in mind um, and change, you know? Like this world doesn't have to be like this. Um, and how, how can we start thinking that through all together like and with all of the different things that are happening so it's 
It's not like we get to sort of have some COVID timeout from thinking about climate change and then come back and really think about climate change. It's it's that all of this all of this is happening, right? It just keeps happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's that quality of really seeing where we have the connections and, and putting our energy there and making mistakes and starting again and trying it and making mistakes and getting tired and starting again. You know, wherever we find it with where, what we're eating or what we're buying or how we're having a conversation or what letters we're writing or who we're speaking up for. It's that quality of like, how are we going to live in such a way that um, more people and ecosystems can live than might otherwise? Um, And I, I feel like thinking about it that way definitely is the thing that makes me still able to sort of like get up in the morning and not just feel despair and exhaustion. Um, yeah. Yeah, and this is, you know, this is really, you know, fundamentally why I wanted to talk to you is the, you know, this this way in which, you know, you make it clear that you are up against, you are, you know, trying to com- combat uh, what you call a purity politics of despair. You're clearly trying to think toward um, a way to overcome that feeling of being overwhelmed by the, what you call the tangle of entanglement, um, you know, and so it's been it's been lovely to talk to you. Oh well, it's been just a thorough pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs>